0: Peter Lightheart joins us today. He is, of course, a longtime contributor to First Things. Actually, P- Peter, I'll say I was looking back through some old issues, and boy, about twenty years ago, I came. You, you've been writing for us for a long time. There's yeah, a piece by it's, you, it's, uh, it's closer there, to so. thirty,
1: I think. I, I started, all right. started writing in the early nineties.
0: All right, all right. Well, he is now president of the Theopolis Institute in Birmingham, Alabama. He joined us last year for a podcast, and he is now here now to discuss another book the title of which is On Earth, As in Heaven, Theopolis Fundamentals. Uh, Welcome, President Lightheart.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, Mark. Great to be with you.
0: (laughs) Okay, first, maybe just an administrative question for everyone. Tell us what the Theopolis Institute is and does.
1: Yeah, Theopolis is an educational organization, uh, partly a media ministry in Birmingham, Alabama. Our goal is to train church leaders, and our particular focal points are scripture and liturgy. Um, uh, every Protestant ministry uh, focuses on the Bible, but we have a particular approach to the Bible that's uh, closer to kind of pre-modern typological, allegorical kinds of exegesis. We we pick up on some of the some of the methods of the early church and medieval medieval um, in, interpreters. Um, and so there's a there's a biblical component of what we do. We teach courses on the Bible, we have videos and podcasts on the Bible. And then the other side of our work is the liturgical side, uh which is uh, in in our world, it's a reformed protestant world. Liturgical studies has not been a major focus of attention for really for centuries, and so it's something kind of kind of innovative in in our world. Uh what we're what we're teaching is not innovative. We're drawing on resources from uh, the Reformed tradition, of course, but also from Lutheran, Anglican, Roman Catholic, Orthodox traditions and trying to, um, uh, we're, we're teaching pastors who are already in pastorates and they're trying to upgrade their understanding of Christian worship, their understanding of scripture. Uh, and we're also teaching uh, seminary students, lay people who are interested in becoming uh, equipped to be leaders in churches. Uh, that's that's the main focus of, of the Theopolis Institute.
0: But also, just interested people who might want to come in and and be interested in in your work who aren't looking for you know a, a profession a career a you know a, a theological post. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We don't
1: we don't just train pastors. Okay. Uh, we okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Anybody is welcome to come. Uh, as it turns out, many of our students are pastors or aspiring pastors, but. Yeah, we we teach anybody who's interested in learning more about the Bible and about worship there's also a cultural component to it and this comes out somewhat in the in the book we're going to talk about but uh kind of the the uh there's a there's a vision within the Theopolis outlook that uh, connects uh, biblical studies with the liturgy the Bible shapes the way we worship the Bible comes into its own within worship within the context of the liturgy that's where the Bible has its impact on the people of God when it's Read and taught in the assembly of in the liturgical assembly. And we believe that that uh, combination of biblical formation, liturgical formation, uh, is essential to the church's mission and the essential, essential to the church's confrontation with culture. So, um, the, the, vision, the image we often use is uh, uh, we take it from various places in the Bible, but there's a vision near the end of the prophecy of Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees this grand vision of a, of a renewed temple. And when the temple is rebuilt, then he sees a trickle of water flowing out from under the door of the most holy place. It uh, goes out through the courtyard of the temple. It flows out uh, out of the temple grounds, out of Jerusalem, off to the east. And as it flows to the east, it becomes a deeper and wider river. Uh, and it's, uh, it's renewing the land. Uh, the trees and plants grow up around it. It renews the Dead Sea at the end. But uh, the... The key point of that vision is that uh, that the source of that water, the the wellspring of that water, is um, of that water of life is uh, in the sanctuary. So, if the church is going to be a life-giving presence in the world, if we're going to be that living water to the world, it has to be uh, flowing out of our worship. We need to worship uh, in a way that honors God. We need to worship in a way that conforms to Scripture. Uh, scripture needs to have a a a, a, a Foundational place in our worship, we like to talk about scripture-saturated worship. But it, uh, this isn't just a—you know—sometimes liturgical studies and even some biblical studies can be kind of antiquarian, just trying to recover some ancient ways of doing things. But we think it's culturally potent, and it's really the ultimately the only way that we can have deep cultural transformation is when uh, the Spirit is working in the church and especially in the liturgy and as the people of God flow out of that, they, they transform and renew the world.
0: You know, you begin the book with a, a profile of uh, of a figure, an individual generally, and I gather that, that that figure is something of a target of the Institute, an object of the Institute, and that profile is of a particular type of young Christian who is maybe a bit unsatisfied with the world, disappointed with the world he inhabits, including its forms of worship. Uh, do you see a lot of these young and disappointed Christians, but want to be Christians uh, out there?
1: Yeah, I, I do think that the the profile is, uh, yeah, it's a kind of hypothetical one, um, but it is it is drawn from experience. Uh, we call, uh, drawing on our the name of the Institute, Theopolis Institute, We uh, we call him Theo and the the female version is Thea. Uh, but Theo is a, is a, is a young Christian. Uh, he's uh, maybe married, has a family. Uh, he's in an evangelical Protestant church. Uh, he loves the Bible, but he doesn't feel like he gets real deep Bible teaching at his church. He's gotten interested in the, the, the liturgical life of the church and the his, historic liturgies of the church. He's become interested in the way the church has worshipped in the past. Uh, and he's uh, trying to find a, all the all the pieces uh, that he's looking for in one place is very difficult. And the, one of the points of the book and one of the points of the institute is to encourage churches to become the kind of place where uh, uh, people like that and everyone can find uh, deep biblical teaching and also rich uh, Eucharistic liturgical worship. And I, I think that that the numbers of the numbers of Theos in our experience have been growing. There's a in evangelical Protestantism over the last 25 years, there's been a, an increasing interest in historic liturgy. Um, Bob Weber, Robert Weber, was part of that early on. Uh, Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith, has been uh, part of that wave, uh, writing on, not some, on the liturgy of the church, but on liturgy as a category for cultural analysis and cultural engagement. Um, I, I often, when I talk about this, I often cite an experience I had at a Baptist seminary some years ago. I gave a talk on Eucharist and Eucharist and work. Uh, and after the talk at this, uh, at this Baptist seminary, first of all, the fact that they were uh, freely talking about Eucharist was a, kind of a surprise to me that Baptists would, would be uh, comfortable with that kind, of, that kind of usage. And then several of them came to me and told me about their PhD or master's work that they were doing. And a number of them were doing things on Eucharistic theology or on liturgical theology, uh, and uh, that's that's something I don't think you would have found 25 years ago in in that kind of world. So yeah hmm. I, I think that that's uh, that that is a that's a profile of a kind of person that we see increasingly um, incre- that we're encountering increasingly and Theopolis is trying to hmm. trying to minister to and and uh, and especially to cultivate churches that that meet those uh, desires
0: you, you you actually locate communion you you locate the supper. Uh, right at the center of the of the Theopolis you you, you your, your term is it is so crucial to the formation of God's city uh, why is that
1: well there's a, a couple of reasons a couple of ways we could uh, come at that uh, one just in terms of uh, the importance of Eucharist in in worship Um and again, this is this would be one of the places where we're somewhat innovative within our within our Protestant world, although early on the reformers were wanted to have frequent frequent Eucharistic celebrations, uh, but that's been that's been dropped, and especially in the reformed in the reformed churches. Um, but uh, that's that's a a major biblical theme that uh, when the people of God gather for worship, they're gathering at a table. Um, in the old testament that took the form of a an altar an altar is a a kind of table it's the place where god's bread as leviticus calls it where god's bread is offered and turned to smoke and ascends into his presence it's all the place also the place where animals are slaughtered so that the people who are worshiping can share a meal you know it if you if you if you looked at somebody going to one of the three feasts in jerusalem an ancient israelite on his way to one of the three feasts in jerusalem um that he that the men were required to attend uh, he would be carrying he'd, he'd taken taking an animal with him or he had money to buy an animal when he got there he would have some grain or other kind of vegetable offering. It would look like he was going to a picnic that's that's he would have the equipment for a picnic uh, and that's basically mm-hmm. what he's doing. He's going into the presence of God to eat drink and rejoice. So mm-hmm. uh, just looking at the 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 way that the uh, Old Testament worship, Worked, and that feeds into the New Testament. I I think that the New Testament uh, fulfills that. In the New Testament, people gather around the breaking of bread. They gather at the Lord's table. The other side, you could say, this is this is an insight that comes uh, out of the uh, out of 20th century Catholic theology in particular. And I'm thinking of Henri de Lubac and his great book Corpus Mysticum, uh, which is uh, a study of the Eucharistic um, formation of the Church. And the kind of the theme of that entire book is that the the particip- participation in the Eucharistic body is what forms the church as the corporate body of Christ. Uh, that's, If you want a, a biblical proof text for that, that's basically what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. Uh, the bread that we break isn't not participation in the body of Christ. The cup that we bless isn't not participation in the blood of Christ. It's by sharing together in those elements as a at, at a communal feast, that's the way that we are formed as body of Christ. We are one body because we all partake of one loaf. Paul goes on to say in that passage. So there's a a connection between the uh, participation in that meal and the formation of the body of Christ. We become more and more what we actually are. We are actually the body of Christ. We become more and more that body as we gather together at the Lord's table for Eucharistic worship. So if we want to have strong churches and churches that actually function as body, uh, then it's crucial yet to have the the Lord's Supper frequently, and it has to be at the center of our worship.
0: You, you have an important section on sacrifice. You mentioned that uh, a few times, sacrifice in the book, and at one point you say that history moves in sacrificial rhythms. Mm. W- what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I'm using sacrifice in a somewhat metaphorical sense when I say that, but I think it's it, it, is, it does fit the way that sacrifice uh, is understood in the Bible. Uh, one of the things that I, I, is crucial, I think, is to recognize that sacrifice is not just a matter of slaughter and blood and death. I think that's that's the immediate thing that we think of when we think of Old Testament sacrifice. Animals were brought to the sanctuary, they were killed, they were dismembered, portions of the animal were burned on the altar, and that's that's all true. That's that's um, that's uh, a, a, a those are crucial moments of the sacrificial ritual. But the aim, of the, the aim of the sacrificial ritual is not just to dismember and to destroy. It's not just a ritual of death, but it's a ritual of death and transfiguration. So the, all, the, the climactic moment of the, all, all of the Old Testament sacrifices is the glorification of the animal. Uh, what happens to the animal parts that are placed in the altar, they're turned to smoke so that they can ascend up into the presence of God. Um, so a, a sacrifice is a matter of death and transfiguration. And that's, that's the kind of general sacrificial pattern, first of all, that I think is going on as early as Genesis 1, in the way that uh, Genesis 1 describes the creation account. Uh, God creates an order of things on day one, then he kind of meddles with it on day two, forms it in a different <laughs> way. Day three, he's meddling it with again, and it's different the next day. Uh, if you think about the creation of Eve, uh, Eve is created by separating Adam a uh, rib from Adam and then forming... Uh, Eve from that rib, so that the two could become one flesh. So the, there's a, a movement of separation, dismemberment, a kind of death, but that's one moment toward a final uh, and ultimate resurrection and glorification. And I think that's that's the way that the Bible describes the the movement of history. Uh, God's at work in history to move it from move the creation from glory to glory. Uh, he doesn't do that in kind of a smooth, steady progress. He does that by uh, uh, periods of death and resurrection, and we see that uh, repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. You have a an, a mosaic order that's set up. Uh, that mosaic order crumbles and is torn apart in the early part of uh, the, the monarchy. There's a gap of uh, about a century before things are put back together, and you have a different order. Now with the king, now with the temple, but then that becomes corrupted, and that phrase and God tears that apart but then you have another 70 to 80 year period and then something new is put together. You have these, you have these movements of death and transfiguration they're running throughout the old Testament that that is the pattern of history, which is basically the same as you uh, as uh, sacrificial patterns. It's also the same as the Eucharistic pattern where we're tearing, they're tearing bread. Uh, wine is being poured out so that we can be united together and glorified as the body of Christ.
0: all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Hmm. The, the history ends w- with the, the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And I- in your book, you, you actually you actually start out by jumping to the end of the yep. book of Revelation. An odd thing that happens at the very end of Revelation. Of that book, well, what is, what is that odd thing, and and why do you begin with it?
1: Well, the odd thing is the the way that uh, the book, the, the climax of the book, and the oddity is that you have uh, the New Jerusalem. Uh, it's a it's a glorified city. This glorified city is also a temple. This glorified city is also a bride. You have this overlapping imagery that's used to describe New Jerusalem, that's descending from heaven. She's descending from heaven dressed as a bride, ready for her husband. Uh, and there's, at the beginning of Revelation 21, you have that city descending as a bride prepared for her husband uh, down to earth. Uh, and there's a new heavens and new earth. Um, and then beginning in uh, uh, around uh, chapter 21, verse nine, uh, you have the, uh, John now up on a high mountain and he's seeing the bridal city descending again. So the odd thing is that it looks like the city descends twice. Um and I think there's structural reasons why that's going on in Revelation. Uh, uh, Revelation 21.9 begins a new vision. That's a new section of Revelation. But I think the key to understanding the the import of that is to to recognize the significance of John's location in that second vision. We don't know where he is seeing the vision, the first vision of the city descending. We know he's on a high mountain when he sees this, the vision of the second the second time the city descends. And that's a position that's significant for prophets throughout the Bible. Moses goes up on a high mountain in order to see the pattern of the the sanctuary at the top of the mountain. And that pattern becomes the tabernacle that's built at the foot of the mountain. Uh, Then uh, Ezekiel goes up on a great and high mountain. It's the same phrase basically in Revelation. Ezekiel goes up on a great and high mountain. He sees a vision of a temple. And that's going to set some kind of pattern for what Israel is supposed to build in the second temple. And now John is up on a great and high mountain, and the city he sees is a city of the future. But it's also a city that's setting a pattern. The future city is setting a pattern for what the church is called to be in the present. So I begin the book there because uh, I think that that's the the trajectory of what we're aiming at when we're when we're seeking the um, the, the reformation, the purification of the church. What we're aiming at is something that resembles that glorified city of Revelation 21, uh, John is giving us a blueprint, as it were, a model that we're supposed to replicate. Of course, it's, it's a symbolic model. Um, you, know, have these, these, you have these impossible dimensions, for example, with the city. Uh, you have the city paved with streets, paved with gold, and uh, you have foundation stones that are precious gems. All, all those have symbolic significance, but they teach us something about the kind of, the kind of community the church is called to be. And so it's by by having that vision of the future that we uh, we try to anticipate that in in the church now.
0: You know, on on, on all the, the the biblical study, a side question, uh, Peter. You say the focus of the institute is very much on on biblical understanding. Do you work with religious schools at all, uh, helping them with Bible curriculum? And I ask that because I. I you know, the, the, it isn't always as strong as it should be in, in the Catholic schools that I've seen. When we when we were in New York, my son actually was in a a school uh, called the Geneva School uh, up up on Park Avenue. Uh, that was went up through middle school through eighth grade, a fantastic school, and in I think it was the best school my son. Uh, uh, it was one of the best that he attended. Um, but one of their eighth grade final projects was to. Memorize the Book of Ephesians. All the kids had to memorize the the, the Book of Ephesians. And I said, that, I think that's wonderful. But anyway, the, the question: uh, Do you do you work with schools? Do you offer schools any any uh, kind of curriculum units about the Bible, things like uh, that?
1: Yeah, we haven't developed anything specifically for schools at this point. Uh, we've had I've had some contact with uh, a, a couple of teachers at a school in in uh, North Carolina who are developing a curriculum that uh, is an mm-hmm. in in effort to. Teach students to read the Bible, uh, close reading the Bible in depth, um, kind of modeled on the 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 way that uh, classical Christian schools have been training students to read the classics. So mm-hmm. they they mm-hmm. sit down with Homer and they're supposed to try to glean from Homer and wrestle with the text of Homer. Uh, these teachers are trying to apply that same process with uh, to to biblical texts, and they're finding the students really really respond uh, enthusiastically. They're they're really they're really interested in uh, exploring the Bible in the kind of depth that they're getting, rather than getting a superficial kind of presentation. I think yeah. You know, so that's the closest we've come. We've we, we've done a little bit of work with them. I've written a couple of books that I I know are used in uh, like classical conversations um, programs around the country. Yeah. Uh, use some of my books uh, for Bible curricula and for literature curricula. Yeah. But we have Well, I, I would. Yeah. We haven't I, developed anything I, specifically
0: i would urge uh principals and school teachers in and our superintendents in dioceses uh, in the catholic dioceses too to to contact you to get some people into the into your uh, yeah. in into your bible uh your bible seminars and 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 whatnot because yeah. um i mean i you know you know i was in english i wasn't in theology. so for yeah. for me you know the first the first the first step is always into the book yeah exactly right but, I mean, and and certainly you know King James is one of the the, the greatest monuments of English literature right. uh, in the yeah. entire in the entire history. So, well, I mean uh, the kind of training ab- you have absolutely
1: the kind of training you have is the kind of training that I think uh, enables you to get deeply into Scripture. You, you're you're looking at the way things are put together. Um, you're looking at the way way things are communicated as well as what's communicated, and I think that uh, is really crucial because the the tendency is to take, go to the Bible. You're going to the Bible for doctrinal content, but you can abstract that without really paying much attention to the literary shape of it, or to moral yeah. content, you can abstract that too. But you're really missing the way God has communicated himself if you don't pay attention to the details of how, how God is communicating and not just what he's communicating.
0: Yeah, well, in my in my career teaching at, down at Emory University in Atlanta, there in English, you'd get some fundamentalist kids passing through who were Bible readers, uh, Bible exegetes from early ages, and boy, were they good! When you, you hand them a poem by Emily Dickinson, yeah. and they can focus laser sharp onto particular words and and, and metaphors, right. uh, uh, they were they were great. They were great. So this is, you know, the 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 reading, the study broad training it'll help them do better powerpoints in business communication right peter
1: <laughs> that's what that's the end game yes for sure
0: <laughs> there we go let me you know is it uh is is the emphasis on sacrifice do you think that that's maybe a difficult message for younger christians
1: uh
0: or or, or, or is it or, or do they like it
1: yeah um i think it might be I, I understand what i i think i understand where the question is coming from i know there's been uh uh, you know, Rene Girard, among others, has uh, inspired efforts to find uh, nonviolent ways to account for the atonement, uh, the, the hmm. death of Jesus, which sometimes means to eliminate sacrifice hmm. uh, as a category for understanding. And I I, I, I suspect that that, um, that hesitation or, or opposition to sacrifice comes from the truncated understanding of sacrifice that I mentioned, that... Sacrifice is all about blood and guts and death and slaughter. It is an act of violence, yeah. Yeah. and that's all it is. Uh, and I, uh, I think that's as I say, I think that's a truncated understanding of, of sacrifice. Uh, yeah. What 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 we found, I, you know, our students are somewhat self-selecting. They're already curious about what we do. So I don't know that I get a good cross-section of the the younger population <laughs> in the in the courses that we offer. But we found is that yeah. uh, students. Recognize the significance of sacrifice, and they begin to see sacrificial patterns, as I do in all kinds of unexpected places. Um, in In the Bible, there are kind of plot lines that are that resemble sacrificial procedures. And one of the one of the things that I noticed years ago when I was working on Kings is the the um, story of the departure of Elijah, where he 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 and Elisha go out of the land as two companions, and Elisha refuses to refuses to depart from him. And then when Elijah's uh, taken away, the two of them are separated. There's a fiery ascent with Elijah's chariot. And then uh, he leaves his mantle behind that, uh, that uh, Elisha takes Um, each one of those, each one of those elements has some corresponding correspondence to the sacrificial, to a sacrificial rite. Uh, You have a separation of two into two, you have the they have a, a something that ascends in smoke and fire. Uh, the high priest, after he had offered a certain kind of offering, he would take this take the hide as his own has his own clothing. So you have the whole sacrificial procedure, but it's now worked out in a kind of narrative pattern. And I think when students begin to see that, and again, that's that's not just a separation. Um, Elisha goes through kind of a death, uh, kind of a mourning ceremony afterwards. He, he's mocked for being bald-headed and I think he's probably shaved his head in mourning because he's lost his lost his mentor he's lost his father uh, yep. you know, but it's not just it's not just that death event but it's the elevation and the glorification once once students get that fuller understanding of, of sacrifice they begin to see it in the Bible and I think in life generally I think there's a it something some it turns a light on I think it uh, exposes a lot of things
0: yeah a quick reading question what is the difference when reading the Bible between being a fundamentalist and a literalist?
1: Hmm. Well, the two go hand in hand a lot. Um, and uh, uh, at least the, the, profet- the claim is that uh, fundamentalists, and uh, particularly fundamentalists who are working in a dispensationalist, premillennial dispensationalist framework, claim to be working uh, with the text literally. Uh, I'm not sure that that holds up. Um, there are liberties taken with the uh, with the literal sense, but the way I would the way I would distinguish, um, for me, fundamentalism has to do with the question of the authority and the accuracy of the Bible. Uh, so I, I consider myself, uh, a, a, fundamentalist in, on those issues. I believe the Bible is God's, God's written word, um, that is, it is inerrant, uh, and, uh, that, um, uh, it's, it's the way God, it's, it's the means by which the spirit speaks to us. So those are fundamental fundamentalist commitments that I have, but that doesn't commit me to um, a literalist sense in the sense of uh, taking the, the the plainest or the most obvious sense as the most important sense. Um, even if you take a if you, if you take a literal sense, you're you're dealing with a lot of literary tropes. You're dealing with similes. You're dealing with metaphors. You're de- dealing with uh, analogical kinds of uh, uh, narrative patterns. So even if you take a, the strictly literal sense. Um, you're there's a there's a there's a richness to it that you can't avoid but I don't think it's supposed to be taking a little sense. Uh, I, I, I uh, usually point out, I have a discussion of this in one part of the one part of the book. Uh, Luke 24 is kind of the the master hermeneutical text in the New Testament. It's the story of Jesus teaching his disciples after his resurrection and uh, he teaches them everything concerning himself and all the scriptures. So for Jesus, the main the main uh, level of reading of scripture is the christological one um, not the literal one not the not the grammatical historical the uh, the grammatical historical is uh, uh, a uh, a subordinate a subordinate framework to the christological or typological reading so um, so i i would be fundamentalist in my commitments to the authority of the bible but not in my and not in my hermeneutical outlook got it
0: you end with Jesus defeating the devil and the quote war on Mammon, and the quote powers striking back. Uh, is there an implication that Christians really should have some militant side to their faith, at least for now? We, would you go with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't think you can eliminate the militancy in any in any context. Um, I mean, the, the New Testament is in a uh, is written in a context where the church is still facing a lot of hostility. There's persecution going on within the New Testament. There's uh, even more widespread persecution that follows the New Testament. Uh, that um, That's just part of the early church's life. So there's this kind of uh, expectation of suffering, but also a, a, a boldness and an irascibility, um, a, a refusal to buckle that uh, is there in the New Testament. I don't think you can eliminate that from Christianity at all. I mean, Jesus... Jesus has the same kind of—he's—he—he uh, a, a, he provokes a reaction. He stands up in the face of opposition. Uh, there's a kind of militancy to Jesus' ministry uh, that uh, I think is any of his uh, his church at any in any age uh, needs to follow, and yeah. uh, certainly in our age, I think there's a, there's no way we can avoid uh, provocation if we're being faithful to what God has revealed about Himself and what He's revealed about human human nature. What is revealed about the world, we can't help but stand in opposition to a lot of the trends of our time, uh, and we have to expect opposition in return. One of the one of the points I'm trying to make in that, that I wrote a, a first things essay a number of years ago about martyrdom, and one of the points I'm trying to make in the book too is that uh, martyrdom is built into the way the church works, and martyrdom is undefeatable. You can't defeat martyrs. Uh, mm. The worst you can do to a martyr is to kill him, but. If you kill a martyr, that's actually fulfilling <laughs> uh, the martyr who's killed. The witness who's killed becomes another uh, testimony to Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, and to the crucified Messiah. Uh, so, there's, you know, if you accept the martyr's witness, then he's one. If you kill the martyr, he's mm-hmm. one again. Uh, mm-hmm. Martyrdom is is indefeasible, and uh, that's that's always a component of our of our mission as Christians.
0: The book is On Earth as in Heaven, Theopolis Fundamentals. Pastor Lightheart, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Mark.
0: And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.